Thank you, Rebecca, and good evening, everyone. Uh, let us pray. Father, it's not always easy when we hear the Bible read for us to acknowledge that this is the word of the Lord or for us to respond with a thanks be to God. But we do acknowledge that the words that we have heard are your words. They are not your only words. (coughs) They are not your last word. But we acknowledge them to be your words. And we ask that the same Holy Spirit who inspired those words in the prophet of old would now enlighten our minds, warm our hearts, and spur us on to love and know and serve you better. Amen. What did people really think they'd been putting into their mouths when they bought those cut-priced burgers, lasagnas, and kebabs? Food critic Giles Corran has asked, what on earth do you think they put in value burgers? Prime cuts of delicious, free-range, organic, rare breed, Heritage beef, grass-fed, eaten, educated, humanely slaughtered, dry-aged, and hand-ground by fairies? <laughs> it's a good point, and it led me think this idea of do we know what we're feeding into our mouths all, all the time made me think about the thoughts and ideas that get fed into our minds. Certainly, from looking at today's headlines, it would scarcely occur to you that God had much to do with anything at all apart from the occasional clerical scandal. They seem to occur on an almost daily basis, including today, of course. What has God got to do with world events? Well, this is precisely where a prophet of God can help us, especially when that prophet is the greatest of all the writing prophets, Isaiah. This is big picture thinking. This is thinking, as far as I can see, about God, the universe, and everything. But it's also about our place in that big plan of God. I want, with Isaiah's help, to ask and to answer three of those big questions about life. Who is in control? Where is it all heading? And what hope is there? So we are in Isaiah chapter 13, and in fact I was allocated uh, chapter 14 as well, but our reading just went into the first couple of verses of that, which are all about Babylon, or mainly about Babylon, And um, we have, uh, at the beginning of chapter 13, uh, a very clear change of gear. The first verse has the same kind of beginning, the same kind of introduction that began chapter 1 of Isaiah, with this announcement that this is coming from Isaiah, son of Amos. 
And then we have a series of oracles or burdens concerning various nations. These are the nations that uh, Israel, that Judah would have heard about, that surrounded Judah, that Judah would in part have thought of as actual or potential enemies, threats, but also of as possible allies uh, that might help them to resist the greater threats that they feared. So a series of oracles concerning the various nations uh, take up the next ten or so chapters. Oracles concerning Babylon, Assyria, the Philistines, Moab, Damascus, Cush, Egypt, and so on and so forth as we go through the next ten or so chapters. And as I say, the first question you want to ask arising from all of this stuff about God's oracle concerning Babylon is, well, who is in charge in the world in which Isaiah was prophesying and writing and, and, uh, and preaching? Who was in charge? Well, there's a little uh, diagram, if you like, of some of the main powers that were influential in that part of the world in those days. Uh, in Old Testament days, the first power, going back to the times of Moses and the Exodus, was, of course, Egypt. And then the second power was uh, Assyria. Uh, and Assyria was the dominant power at the time that Isaiah was, uh, was uttering uh, this oracle. Assyria was followed by Babylon, and then Babylon was followed by Persia. These are some of the key world powers as far as the Old Testament is concerned. But as I say, when Isaiah was speaking these words, it was Assyria which was the dominant power in that world. Assyria covers all of that yellow area uh, and uh, with uh, just a small kingdom for Egypt. And uh, where's Judah in that? Hardly anywhere to be seen. No wonder Assyria was seen as such a threat, such a threatening force to, uh, to Isaiah and to those who lived in Judah. Very powerful force, the dominant force in those days. So we would say, if we said, who is in control of the world in those days, in that part of the world, you would say Assyria was in control. We might ask, why then does Isaiah begin this series of oracles, not with Assyria, that comes late, a bit later, but with Babylon. Well, we know uh, that it would actually not be Assyria, but Babylon, who would eventually conquer Judah and carry off its people into exile. By the time we reach uh, chapter 39 of Isaiah, that becomes clear. So although Assyria is the apparently dominant power, Babylon is the one to be feared who will eventually conquer and take Judah off into exile. But now then, what does God have to say to Babylon through his prophet? From verse 3 of, verse, uh, of chapter 13 onwards, we read God through his prophet saying these kinds of things. I have commanded, I have summoned, I will punish, 
I will put an end. I will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold. I will make the heavens tremble. I will stir up against them the needs. And I think that Rebecca, when she gave us our reading, was quite right to emphasize those repeated I wills. They're very powerful. And this is God saying to a dominant military and political force of the day, it is my will that counts. That's what God is saying through his prophet to Babylon. I will. This is what I will do. But you know, this isn't just about Babylon, the city, circa 700 years B.C., All the way through this section, the language, it seems to me, is straining towards something bigger and more long-lasting, something global. Notice the global language, even cosmic language language of chapter 13 and verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil. Not just Babylon, I'll punish the world. Or chapter 13 and verse 13. Notice the... the, um, Uh, The cosmic uh, aspect here, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place. And this becomes even clearer uh, towards the end of chapter 14. If you will just look with me, not part of uh, the reading, but part of the, uh, the larger passage that I was asked to consider with you. Chapter 14 and verse 24 and following. The Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be, and as I have purposed, so it will stand. This, verse 26, this is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? Now, in the thought, in the words of the inspired prophet, I ask you again, who is in control? Not just of a city called Babylon, but of all nations at all times. As far as the human eye is concerned, yesterday it was Egypt. Today it's Assyria. Tomorrow it's Babylon. The day after that it's Persia. Then comes Rome. Even Britain, little Britain, would rule the waves for a a short moment. Then the United States, and what next? China. Do we regard these these nations as in control? Each one of those was an empire that thought it would last a thousand years, but none did. Who is in control? Brothers and sisters, do not allow God to be airbrushed from your picture of the world. Allow these chapters in Isaiah to act as what one writer calls faith builders. Let them reveal to you the true character of God. Let them show you that he is working in the world. Let them remind you of the folly of opposing God's purposes. Fix it in your mind that God reigns and that everything that happens is under his control. Under his control, orchestrated towards the fulfillment of his eternal plan. Now, the thought of God's eternal plan takes me on to the next question that I would like to ask of this passage. The first question is 
Who is in control? My second question is, where is it all heading? Where's it all heading? Now, of course, the prophets of doom today are not so much the theologians as the scientists. Scientists predict a catastrophic end to life as we know it. They just can't agree at the moment about whether that catastrophic end we brought about by climate change, asteroid impact, or perhaps a runaway pandemic. Recently, scientists have been probing the properties of the Higgs boson using a concept called vacuum instability they predict that a completely new universe could open up within the present one and replace it at the speed of light. But I wouldn't lose too much sleep about it. It's not going to happen for a number of billions of years. So you can sleep, with regard to that particular prediction, fairly easily tonight. But Isaiah has set his sights on the more immediate and indeed the more definite future. He speaks in chapter 13 and verse 9 and following of the day of the Lord which will devastate Babylon. As for that devastation, then see verses 19 and following, a place where only weird animals would, uh, would, would prowl. The devastation of Babylon, this nation yet to become a great and dominant force, devastated. Could that be true? Yes, it is true. History records what prophecy had predicted. Babylon would vanish from the face of the earth. Until about a hundred years ago, archaeologists didn't even know where the site of ancient Babylon was. So utterly had it been devastated. But once again, in all of this talk of Babylon, and maybe this is another reason why Babylon is placed first in these oracles uh, against the nations, there's something bigger going on. Because have you noticed that Babylon crops up repeatedly in Scripture? Right from Genesis chapter 11, remember the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babylon? where men thought they would build uh, a tower right up to the heavens in defiance of God and in defiance of God's judgment, right through to the book of Revelation and the later chapters of Revelation, where Babylon stands for and symbolizes everything about human human civilization that is in rebellion and defiance against its God. So the day of the Lord for local Babylon is accordingly but a preview of a final day of the Lord with a capital D that will happen at the end of time. Of that day of the Lord, Peter writes in his second letter, when the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Looking back then, we see a historic fall of Babylon. Looking forward, we see the future collapse of all human power that sets itself up in defiance of God. Looking back and looking forward, what does it mean for us living as we do between these 
times. After Isaiah, but before the Day of the Lord, capital D. Well, it means, it seems to me, that we can leave the work of judgment to God, who has, according to Acts chapter 17, God who has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. I wouldn't judge myself, I, I, wouldn't trust my, I wouldn't trust you to judge the world, but God is the judge of all the world and he will do it right. He will put all wrongs to right by the man he has appointed. As Christians, living, as I say, in these middle times, as Christians we are taught not to judge, not to condemn, not to retaliate, no matter how badly we may be treated by the world. Christians can, may, should live with with serenity rather than savagery, because God has said, vengeance is mine, not yours, mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So that's where everything is heading. And that was, and is, who is in control. Now the third and last question to ask of this chapter, of this uh, passage, is this. What hope is there? What hope is there? Philosopher Alan de Botton has recently challenged his fellow atheists to consider what virtues might add up to a good life. And he proposes a list of ten, ten commandments, if you like, for conscientious atheists, and good for him for thinking about what constitutes a virtuous life if you don't believe in God. Anyway, his list of ten virtues for atheists are as follows. Resilience, empathy, patience, sacrifice, politeness, humor, self-awareness, forgiveness, confidence, and hope. But, you know, it seems to me that merely advising people to be more hopeful is like telling depressed people to cheer up or telling anxious people to stop worrying. It just doesn't work like that. People need to have reasons for cheering up, for being cheerful or for not worrying or for hoping. Without God, what ultimate hope could there possibly be? It's no accident then that Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 links these two thoughts together, without hope and without God. As for Isaiah, he knows that God's people will go through, bad, go through hard times, brought on by their own disobedience and rebellion. But Isaiah holds out also a reason for hope at the beginning of chapter 14. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Aliens will join them and unite with the house of Jacob. Notice, please, the basis of this hope. The mention of Jacob and of Israel recalls God's ancient covenant forged on Mount Sinai. It tells us that God has not rejected his people, and that God has not annulled his ancient promise to them. And notice also the scope of this hope. Is this hope for God's people just for a tiny remnant, for a chosen few? 
Does this perhaps accord with uh, the prayer of Holy Willie in the uh, satirical poem by Robbie Burns? I wish I could do a Scottish accent. I cannot. But the first verse goes like this. O thou who in the heavens does dwell, who as it pleases best thyself, sends one to heaven and ten to hell, all for thy glory. Is it that kind of crimped and cramped hope of which the prophet speaks? Not so. The very mention of aliens in chapter 14 and verse 1 is very telling and very striking. It hints at God's ultimate purpose in defeating and destroying the forces of evil and in setting the world to rights. God's purpose is to build a people that knows no ethnic nor economic or cultural bounds. God's purpose is to build a worldwide community. This hope will bud, uh, this bud will swell in later chapters of Isaiah and will come to full flower in the message and mission of Jesus, who will send us out in the power of the Holy Spirit to make disciples of all nations. Already Isaiah has been preparing the way by speaking in chapter 7 of Emmanuel, the child of the virgin, and in chapters 11 and 12 of the shoot from the stump of Jesse, one who would come in the line of King David and be great David's greater son. And so we'll come later to Holy Communion. And here we remember our Lord's death until he comes, according to 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. That is to say, until the day of the Lord we gather around the Lord's table. Until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, as it's put elsewhere in the New Testament. When he will come again, not this time as a lamb to the slaughter, but as king of kings and lord of lords, and as judge of the living and the dead. We can look forward to that day, trusting that God really is in control of world events, believing that everything is headed towards the fulfilment of God's ultimate purpose, and that we, each one of us, can be a part of that. We could come as we come to the rail for communion, be thinking, I want to be a part of God's purpose, and me, and me, and me. And as far as hope is concerned, we can always be prepared then to give an answer to everyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have. Thanks be to God.